Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy, Ira Cooper, and Kurt Levins. And if we weren't all such modest fellows, I'd say we were the Fab Four. (laughs) (laughs) But we are modest fellows, and that's kind of an overstatement in any case. But we're we're the Swell Four. All right. We're going to do the first 50 games of the year. Um, we're going to take a look, an overview of those 50 games, and we're going to use our the format that we always use, but to tweak it slightly, since there's four of us, we will have four good things, four bad things, and four numbers today. So, um, Bruce, why don't you start it off with your good thing? Okay, I'll come in late at the fair, and my good thing, uh, the talisman for my good thing is Vincent Dehernier. DeHarney, who the orders called up uh, right after game number 41, just as they did in the 2019-20 season with Kyler Yamamoto. They called him up after game 41, and their fortunes turned immediately. And credit to DeHarney, uh, to whatever degree you choose, but somewhere in the positive, uh, the insertion of DeHarney started a, uh, uh, a chain of events, which I think helped to make the Edmonton Oilers better. Uh, made them better defensively. It made them better on the penalty kill. And the new way that the team aligned with uh, seven D-men, 11 forwards, with four of those D being right shot and three of them being lefties, uh, seems at least in the short term to be the magic formula. And the team has since gone on a 7-0-1 and one run. Uh, just pouring in the uh, the goals, outscoring their opponents by, where are we here now, Edmonton, uh, 45 goals to 28 since, uh, this was since uh, game number 41. And they've, they've just been uh, uh, seriously uh, 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 outplaying the other teams at both ends. And the, the 11-7 formula featuring Deharney as the seventh guy filling specific roles uh, just seems to be uh, work better than previous renditions where the seventh D was always a left shot guy. And what's happened is the three guys that are on left defense are all kind of playing regular minutes. And Deharney has taken a few minutes here and there from uh, guys on the right side. And uh, filling in a little bit for weaknesses. For instance, the Oilers uh, for a while had Evan Bouchard and uh, uh, or Tyson Berry, and for the longest time was Tyson Berry killing penalties along with Cody Cece in the top four of the unit. And with DeHarney there, they can consign both Bouchard and Berry. It's not like, well, you got to use one of your right D no matter what. You can, you can. Uh, uh, mix it up and, and uh, basically taken Barry off the unit and put DeHarnay there. That unit's gotten better. And they've deployed, I think, uh, DeHarnay in situations where the big defensive presence was uh, was helpful. And uh, in the meantime, uh, they haven't got a seventh D-man who's taken minutes away from Philip Broberg. In the meantime, we have Broberg on the uh, uh, now playing uh, um, 15 minutes a night as a true number three left defenseman. 
on a very productive pair with young Evan Bouchard. They're both kind of looking for the right partner. And for now, again, at least it seems like they found each other. And they have, uh, uh, they've really kicked the crap out of uh, opposing teams for this last while from the third pairing. And whilst I know everybody's all hot and bothered about the top four, the top four, the top four has got to be good. If your third pairing is kicking the crap out of their third pairing and third tier players, you've got a one goal lead before you even have to worry about, the t- you know, just turn it upside down. I mean, you're just trying to outscore the other team, right? It doesn't really matter which line is doing the outscoring. And Edmonton's bottom lines have been doing that with the assignments they've been getting. And those guys have been heavily sheltered, but to their credit, they've taken advantage of that shelter and they've been doing the crap kicking. So uh, good on them. And especially good on Vincent DeArnay, who's been, uh, I've had a soft spot for that guy. They drafted him in 2016, seventh round, his third available draft. And he came to the camp, that uh, development camp, a couple of weeks later. And you couldn't help but notice the guy. He's six foot seven, just towering over everybody. And he was, uh, I was watching him and say, well, he's probably going to be slow. He's going to get beat wide. No, he's not really having that problem. He can turn both ways. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't look like he's skating that fast, but he's got a slow turnover, but he's longer stride. So, and, oh, yeah, he's big. And I kept coming back to how friggin' huge the guy is, how much ice he covers. And from there, from that raw start, he's worked his way and worked his way in his draft plus seven year. Here he is in the NHL and making the most of it. And to me, that is a good thing all in its own. Like, it's really quite a story to uh, follow and quite a player to root for, for Oilers fans. And I think almost all Oilers fans have taken a liking to this big guy. Yeah, unlike Nima Linen, he's not only um, physical. He's he, with his body. He's really nasty with his stick, which yeah. I never saw from Nima Linen. <laughs> he's and re, let's let's be if we're all completely honest, and I, de- I doubt any one of us disagrees with this. Replacing Tyson Berry on the penalty kill was crucial. Tyson Berry's become a decent, even strength defender, but he was getting eaten alive on the penalty kill. He just his reads were off. He's not big enough. He's not nasty enough. He's just the wrong fit. But uh, so the, the Harney has come on. Bouchard and Philip Roberry are this fantastic third pairing um, defense group. Kulak's playing a little better, but Kurt, uh, I want to just ask you: Do you do you think the seven D is the right formula for the playoffs? Or as recently as a month ago, there was a widespread consensus that I shared in that the owners needed to trade for a defenseman, likely a likely a second pairing uh, left shot D man who could play defensive hockey. Do you think that? Um, that's now out the window because of what's happened with the seven, uh, the seven demon formation. I hope not because they need to trade for a top four demon. This is, this is all great. And I'm, and I'm happy for Vincent DeHarnier. I'm happy for Philip Broberg. I'm happy for the, for the new reduced roles that Tyson Berry and Evan Bouchard are in. Um, but you know, let's, let's, project ahead to round two of the playoffs game six uh and are you really going to be okay with 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 these seven guys as as your defense pair yes you shored up the bottom half of your defense you didn't make the your top four better all right um and so yeah i i think the club needs to trade for a top four d-man maybe they don't need as good of a d-man as they thought they needed because maybe these guys have have 
come together and, you know, maybe you're just going to get a rental as opposed to a guy with guns, yeah. right? But I, I think anybody who thinks that their number one thing on the shopping list isn't a defenseman, I think they're incorrect because I think that's exactly what uh, Ken Holland's looking for. One more quick thing. Um, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, um, Philip Broberg has made Evan Bouchard better. Sure. Okay. I, I think what's made Phil, uh, uh, Evan Bouchard better is not penalty killing. Um, no matter what you do in your career, if you spend a bunch of time doing something that you're not any good at, you won't have much confidence. And I think he was just put in a role where he wasn't given a good chance to succeed, didn't succeed and felt shitty about it. Um, now that he's in a role where he can succeed, he's starting to play like the Evan Bouchard that we saw last year. And so I think Vincent DeArnier's number one contribution is making Evan Bouchard better. Ira, let's go to you for your good thing. Oh, we can't hear you. Oh, sorry about that. Um, okay. We're already 10 minutes in and it's almost becoming a disservice to uh, not talk about uh, Connor McDavid having uh, <laughs> one of the most historic offensive seasons in NHL history. And I don't even think I'm exaggerating when, when I say that. We're 50 games into the season and he has 92 points, which is a pace of 151 points if he keeps it up and then doesn't get hurt. And of course, we all know about his increased goal scoring, uh, 41 goals, um, which is a pace of 67. I remember about a year ago, we were talking about Austin Matthews maybe getting 50 or even 60 goals. And this was the most amazing thing ever because it's the new NHL and people don't get 60 goals. Well, McDavid's blowing right through that and is on pace uh, for 67. Um, if he gets to 151 points, it'll be the first time since I believe it was 95, 96, um, when uh, Mario Lemieux uh, got uh, 150 points. And I believe it would make McDavid the seventh player of all time to get 150 points. And if he gets to, uh, you know, he's on pace for 67 goals. It's not that far off from 70. And I think we all know that historically, McDavid has kind of picked up the offensive pace in uh, in in uh, March and April. So it's not unheard of that he might even get to 70. Um, and I think that would make him like the eighth player of all time to get 70 goals. So um, even, even if he falls a little bit short of, of these goals, it's, you know, even if you're taking away, if you're not even adjusting it for era, you know, it's one of the best seasons of all time. And then, you know, if you want to adjust for era and think about, you know, the difference in goal scoring between, you know, the, the 80s and early 90s to now, um, it really is on pace to be one of the most historic seasons of all time. And, you know, when I think back and, you know, whenever there's the debate about offense and people try and discount Gretzky's stats from the 80s a bit by saying, you know, everybody scored a lot of points in the 80s. Well, that's right. But one of the things I always come back to is the gap between Gretzky and the second place uh, or the third and fourth most of those years. And sometimes it was huge, like 50 points. Every year it was huge. 70 it, it, points. Exactly. Um, McDavid's 92 points are 16 clear of the second place player 
and 20 points clear of the first non-oiler, which is uh, Kucherov with uh, 72 points. Um, and his 41 goals, aside from Pasternak, who's got 38, that's seven goals clear of, uh, of Paige Thompson and Miko Rantanen. So, you know, project that pace out another 30 games, just the gap between McDavid and, and everybody else. It, it's just a season for the ages that, that we're witnessing. And, and it's not like McDavid's getting, you know, the, the, the cheap goals off his shin pad and in or, you know, tapping in a, a rebound into an empty net. I swear two-thirds of these goals are either a crazy end-to-end rush or one of his apparent new skills, which is shooting off the rush, um, which he has to be one of the best in the league, just you know, coming down with speed, moving to the middle, changing the angle, and picking a corner. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does when he uh, starts to pick things up, as he likes to do in, uh, in March and April, and, and where we end up. That's the new thing with McDavid is the goals off the rush. That's the new wrinkle in his game. And uh, he studied how people score goals in the offseason, and I think he learned a thing or two. Uh, the, the one guy on the list, I'm just looking at the list of the top point scorers of all time, Bernie Nichols had 150 points yeah. one year. Yeah, well, the year Wayne went to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That's and astonishing. We're on the same power play together. We're on all the same four on fours oh, together, it, and then Nichols was, and Wayne got the Wayne got the toughest opponents, and Nichols had he was on a line with Robitaille and was it maybe Sandstrom? He had he had Dave Taylor was with Nichols and Robitaille. They had like the best. He had the best wingers, and he was kind of like where Leon is in terms of his position within the team, and he just and and highly motivated that whole Kings team in 1988-89 was pumped getting Gretzky and they they just went for it that was so Nichols he's at the bottom of the list there's only five guys uh Ira uh, Wayne Gretzky nine times Meryl Lemieux four times and Steve Eisenman Phil Esposito and Bernie Nichols once each so in other words Gretzky has more 150 point seasons than all the rest of the NHL players in the history of the league all right Kurt, <laughs> just another Kurt. routine Gretzky mark <laughs> I also another thing before we move on. When I was looking at that that list, the one stat I don't think McDavid's going to get to where uh, Gretzky did was the plus one hundred uh, one season I saw from for Gretzky. <laughs> Bobby Orr's got that record. But yeah. Is it one hundred and two? One hundred and twenty-four plus one hundred and twenty-four, and Larry Robinson was plus one hundred and twenty. Oh, jeez. So. Bob Bobby was an okay player. <laughs> Some dominant teams. Some dominant yes. teams. You could stack talent in those days. You could never do that today. No you chance. Kurt, you're a good thing. Stuart Skinner, um, I submit that uh, the Oilers would not still have a shot at making the playoffs if it wasn't for Stuart Skinner. Um, Jack Campbell's first half of the season was so disastrous that if they did not have a goaltender like Stuart Skinner that they could and did lean on, they would be mired deep in the Pacific Division right now. I think Stuart Skinner, not single-handedly, because as Ira rightly pointed out, there's a few other people that had a hand in this. I think he has rescued their otherwise would have been Seward season. And if you think about it, uh, if Stuart Skinner had laid an egg as well, Ken Holland would have had to go out there and with his non-existent cap space, found someone else who would have, you know, supposedly played better and would have had to spend precious assets 
in order to fix that problem then instead of still having some money in the bank when, when we're coming up to the deadline now. Um, if you, I haven't even mentioned his stats yet and the fact that he's an all-star in his rookie season. Um, you know, he has played so well. He practically carried this team, uh, certainly from a goaltending standpoint. And where they would be without him is sunk. Um, thankfully, Jack Campbell seems to have at least found a semblance of his game now. And it looks like they can, you know, have that A1, A2 tandem that we were all hoping we would have in the summer. But if Stuart Skinner hadn't been good out of the gate, I shudder to think where this team would be right now. Indeed. And oh, you, uh, um, you spoke with uh, Stoffer on Oilers, Nation, on Oilers Now today and uh, in, in your piece about the, the goaltending uh, conundrum, as you like to call it, where, you know, Skinner has been that much better than Campbell, but yet the for some reason the the win loss record isn't uh, isn't quite there. But uh, I have to uh, agree with Kurt that you know um, Stu, local boy, um, who I actually got to meet uh, in person uh, back in November and was just as personable and nice as everybody says he is, um, almost single handedly, but uh, with a few other people, uh, um, saved that season and and you know just gave. Campbell the time um, to, to take the time that he needed. He basically, I think there was a two plus week stretch where he didn't play any games and get the practice time and get used to the new equipment and do what he needed to be done. And, and uh, without having a uh, Stewart play above expectations, um, who knows where we'd be. And before I let uh, somebody else speak, I noticed uh, the athletic has their updated uh, rankings uh, for all the, the, the trophies uh, today. And they have uh, uh, Skinner as a solid uh, second uh, for the uh, for the Calder. Logan Thompson no longer even on the list, I guess. I didn't read it that closely, and, uh, but uh, the advanced metrics and goals saved above expected and all that stuff. Uh, uh, but Skinner's in there and second with a bullet behind uh, Matty Bermeers. Very cool. Yeah, the, the, the difference in records, if you think about it, is it's just pretty much three, the difference is three wins. If Skinner had been in for three more wins, turning those losses into wins, and I think it really does come down to, he's faced just some hot goalies in the other other teams, net, Anaheim goalie, um, CBJ's goalie, Columbus's goalie, and uh, and um, and Comrie in another game. So it's 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 not that confounding in the end when you really think about it. You just it's just luck of the draw. You face some hot goalies, you're gonna get beat now and then. So my um my good thing is the last eight games, we'd be having a very different discussion if they had gone four and four in those games. And um instead they went uh, seven wins and they had one uh, overtime loss. So that's 15 out of 16 points. In those in those um, eight games, they scored 40 goals and they gave up 20 goals. Um, they, you know, we measure grade A shots at the Cult of Hockey. The Oilers had 138 grade A shots in those eight games. The opposition had 76. <laughs> that level of domination is awesome. The Oilers have been playing awesome hockey in this eight-game stretch. It's kind of what some of us, including me, expected to see from the start of the year, that they would pick up where they left off in the playoffs, against the Flames at least, and be a, a dominant team in the NHL. And um, that didn't that didn't happen for a number of reasons. Um, 
maybe I was a little bit optimistic and others are a little bit optimistic about that, but they have been that in the last eight games. And the, the key, the key moment of course is they win the first two games against the ducks and the sharks. And then they face Vegas, Tampa and Seattle. And I remember a lot of fans were thinking this could be three losses in a row. And um, you know, that fear was all over social media and uh, you know, it could have been, could have easily been. But that wasn't the case. They were able to uh, beat Vegas 4-3, Tampa 5-3, and the Kraken 5-2. That, that, that streak defines their season against those three teams. They, they Coming up big in those games just really put a stamp on this team as, yeah, maybe this team is a Stanley Cup contender like many of us thought. Maybe it really is going to build on what happened in the making it to the Final Four last year. Maybe it has what it takes. Sure didn't look like it for a long time. It looked like, um, well, it wasn't as bad as the 2017-18 season when the Oilers completely collapsed after um, their great playoff run in 2017. But it did have the feeling of last last year when they got off to such a tepid start under Dave Tippett uh, with inconsistent goaltending from Mike Smith and Mikko Koskinen and looked like and it got Tippett fired. They looked like they were headed in the exact same direction. And you wondered how they were going to get out of it this time because, you know, were they going to fire the coach again to <laughs> incite uh, everyone to work harder and let's start listening to the coach? For, you know, they didn't do that. They didn't have to do that, it, it looks like. And Woodcroft, he got the chance where Tippett didn't get the chance to, to work their way out of it. You know, they were never as, of course, they were never quite as bad as at the end of Tippett's reign in Edmonton. At the end of Tippett's reign in Edmonton, they did collapse. And that hadn't yet happened under Woodcroft, as, as mediocre as the orders had been up and down. But um, full credit to the coaches and the players. This this last eight games has been tremendous. And it sets them up to make the playoffs. And we'll see what happens then. I, I think we're calling it the uh, Vinnie DeHarnay era. Oh. <laughs> the Vinnie bounce. <laughs> indeed indeed and you know a lot of guys think Austin on what what Bruce was saying and you know I think remember the the game before um the eight game streak where Vinny was watching in the press box was the game where they gave up four power play goals and uh, in the succeeding eight games the Vinny DeHarnay era I believe it's <laughs> only uh, two total in those eight games so it has been good Let's move on to our bad things, gentlemen, and we'll start again with you, Bruce. What is your bad thing? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the disappointing first half of the young skaters on the team. I'm specifically going to exclude Stuart Skinner from this because, of course, as uh, Kurt already mentioned, he uh, has more than answered the bell to this point. Uh, But the younger skaters that the team was really counting on uh, I know I was as a fan. I was thinking, well, this is a natural place for these guys to grow. You know, that uh, uh, some of the older players have moved on. Uh, some of the big contracts mean the Oilers must get value from some of these entry-level contracts and, and uh, uh, bridge term deals. So four players that I'm going to mention here, uh, three on ELCs and one that's on a one-year show me bridge deal for $798,000. So he's actually cheaper than the other guys. Uh, They are in order of uh, youngest to oldest, Dylan Holloway, who had five points in 37 games uh, 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 after game 41. 
Philip Robery, who had two points in 15 games and had missed a whole bunch of time and spent other time in the minor leagues due to three different injuries that he suffered in the first part of the season. And he was just having a hell of a time getting going. Evan Bouchard, who had 14 points in 41 games after last year averaging well over one point every two games. And he had a vicious bad minus of minus 14 at that time. All of these players were minus. Uh, the last one being Ryan McLeod, who had uh, nine points in 28 games. And he, too, had suffered an injury that put him out for several weeks. So in some cases, it was, you know, stuff happening to the player. But really, in all the cases, you could say, well, are the owners getting what they were expecting from this young player? And I'd have to say the answer was no in every case. Uh, so that takes us to the halfway point, which, of course, is just before this recent turnaround. And those guys have been some of the best surprises in the in the recent run. So I know Bouchard and Brobery playing together were each plus nine in the, in the uh, last 10 games. Uh, uh, Ryan McLeod scored five goals in his last nine games. Five goals in nine games. I mean, got to like that. And uh, uh, Dylan Holloway has shown signs of, you know, outscoring his mistakes, which really he wasn't doing in the first part of the season. And, I, you know, he's showing, he's, he's showing real sort of progress by eye, and I would suggest also by stat. And all four of these guys are, are have seem to have turned the corner right around the turn of the ca uh, calendar or the halfway point of the season. Uh, so, whatever, I think the, the the future looks brighter than the uh, than the immediate past in each case. So I'm I'm happy to say this is a past tense bad thing, but it did really uh, cause some grief in the first half of the season. Alrighty, Ira, your bad thing. Um, you know what? My bad thing is going to uh, parlay off Bruce's a, a little bit, and it's the uh, disappointing uh, <laughs> missing expectations of the, I'm going to call them the, the mushy middle Hello. and the $3 million <laughs> men. Um, uh, we've talked about, you know, the top of the roster a little bit. We have uh, some superstars that are actually exceeding superstar expectations. And then um, we have a second tier, um, two other forwards that probably should be in the all-star game that aren't. And even in, in the bottom of the roster, um, uh, we've got some guys like Derek Ryan that are exceeding expectations, Clem Costin that are exceeding expectations. But the three players that aren't, are the three players that were competing and I guess still are competing for that one last top six spot on the Oilers, the $3 million men, Jesse Pugliarvi, uh, Warren Fogel, <laughs> and uh, I'm losing my trail thought here, uh, Kyler Yamamoto. Um, Bruce mentioned the uh, kind of disappointing start to the season for young rookie uh, Dylan Holloway. Well, I believe Dylan Holloway is uh, tied in points, tied in even straight points with both Jesse Pugliarvi and uh, Warren Fogel, and that's with uh, much less time in the uh, in the top of the roster. Um, for this, let me pull up my numbers here. Um, for five and five points on the Oilers. 
the highest of those three is Kyler Yamamoto with 11 points. That's behind Derek Ryan. That's behind Clean Costin, who's only played uh, 34 games. And then it's one one point ahead of Evander Kane and his 18 in his 18 games, uh, and below that Warren Fogel and Jesse Pugliarvi with nine five on five points. And I think each of them have one more point on uh, on special teams. Um, so these three, they're the, we have. I think everybody will agree we have five legit top six players on this team um, with Evander Kane back. There's a spot there for somebody, and nobody's been able to step up. And even when Evander Kane was out, there's two spots there, and nobody was able to step up. Um, Warren Fogel was healthy scratched, uh, uh, aside from the last game, uh, about two or three weeks prior. He came back, and he had a couple good games, and I think he got some time up there, but that was it. Um, then he kind of, you know, he's still trying hard and skating hard, but the production just isn't there. And these three guys are making $8.5 million or so between the three of them. And they're just, uh, underperforming. And unfortunately, one of the areas that we might need an upgrade is a, is a middle, uh, middle six forward or, or top six or, a, you know, right winger, um, especially with, you know, one of those guys probably being disposed of to open up cap space to you know get that top four defenseman uh, that Kurt talks about or or depth defenseman um, or maybe they're gonna get a uh, um, you know a, a center like a, a Jonathan Taze or a Ryan O'Reilly I think they might both be pipe dreams but that allow Nuge to to maybe play the wing full time but uh, my bad thing is those uh, three underperforming. Uh, Veterans, I'll call them the 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 older youngsters, the young vets. Yeah, exactly. I'm reminded of um, you when you talked about a trade. I'm reminded of the trade Colorado made last year to bring in Arturi Lekkonen, and um, what an absolute difference he made for that team. No kidding. And if they if the Oilers could find a guy like that um, to come in and replace one of these players, yes, that would be fantastic. I mean, that would be. A plus for the scouts. Well, one thing about Pugliarvi, I was talking to a guy called Jim Barber, who's kind of, he's an expert in shooting the puck and um, he uh, he's just a fan, but this is his passion in life is shooting. And uh, he made a really interesting point about Pugliarvi. And it's, I don't know, I wonder if you guys get the same sense. Whenever Pugliarvi is shooting the puck, I never get the feeling he's going to score. He just, he he's just someone who cannot pick the corner, who can't, get a goal and and barber made a really good point he said he just every time he gets it he's he's taken too long to shoot it he's got one of the slowest releases in the nhl and um you know i can think of incidents incidents when that has happened of course there are of course he does one time the puck uh now and then as well when it's appropriate but he when he does that he never he just never is able to put it off the corner bar down anything like that put it off the bar put it off the post so yeah, it is something that a young player that, you know, he's got to work on. And there's a, the, we saw the video of Dreisaitl and him working after practice about a week ago. Man, this is one of those things where, yes, if he was willing to put in like five hours a week shooting pucks, it could mean the difference of 20 or $30 million in his life. Or hire a skills coach. The Oilers. Jesse. No, oh, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. He could, he could do that as well. The players hire their own skills coach. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, Adam Oates for, you know, famously hired by so many players, including Darnell Nurse. Yeah. 
Yeah, the interesting thing on that shooting of David, and I and I don't disagree. Um, and but the thing is, he has shot the puck with authority and, and quicker in the past. Like during the first half of last year, when he had those, you know, twenty three points in the first twenty eight games and was playing with McDavid, there was a couple times they had a give and go, and Jesse went in off the rush and just roofed it, you know, off the rush, and you know, with a seemingly quick release. I, I, I there's a couple that I that I can recall. I haven't seen it in a year, you know, like like a calendar year almost. Um, like, so he, he has done it, you know, and um, I, I don't know where it went. I know confidence is a thing, but, but you know. Well, practice Ira breeds consistency, and, and I would suggest that, you know, listen, in beer league, I've had some damn good shots too, but they're few <laughs> and far between. You know, people can get lucky. <laughs> people get lucky shooting the puck, and yeah, he will, he will now and then get off a good shot, but he cannot consistently do yeah. it, and he has never been able to consistently shoot, really shoot the puck consistently and pick a spot and hit it, and so that I have no problems with so many aspects of his game. Uh, I think he's a strong forechecker. I think he's a strong backchecker. I think he should be on the PK. I, I like him in a lot of ways, but his passing is really good. He's an unselfish hockey player, um, but he he's got a score. Yeah, he's got a score, and and he should. Be, I think he should be, and he won't. But he won't start scoring until he. Make some changes, I think, in his training regimen and and um, maybe his conception of the game, like um, his offensive conception, which is hard to do. Um, and, and before we move on, just uh, to to somebody else's bad thing, I just I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that you know when I lump those three players together, and, and I do, I do think that that Yamamoto has been a little less disappointing than the other. Yeah. His his you know his eleven points is is in. Fewer games. Um, he's got the injury issues, which you know, which, which are That's still disappointing. He's also he also contributes on, on the penalty kill. Um, yeah, I think he's actually second on time on ice per game amongst forwards on, on the PK. Um, you know, Fogel and Jesse are not you know special teams contributors at all. I know they tried to get Fogel up to speed on the on the PK, but he's averaging about 40 seconds a game. And and Jesse, aside from maybe some mop up duty on on PP one or Hyman's not available at the moment, or for some reason it doesn't see any special teams. So you know, Kyler's doing a little more. Um, in less games, and actually, he's got the highest uh, goal goal share <laughs> percentage on the team at at five on five from his time with uh, Leon, and you know Jesse's on the other end of that spectrum. So I do think that Yamo has been a little disappointing. I think a lot of it's injury, and he just hasn't been able to to you know sustain the season um, healthy at all. Um, but uh, but all three of them as a group uh, are a bit disappointing. Yamo's yeah, disappointments are injuries. Uh, he's got hurt four times in seven, eight months, yeah. starting with the yeah. Colorado series. In the preseason, he got hurt. Uh, he played, I think he played because the roster was short, so short-staffed earlier mm-hmm. than he should, and then they they sat him as soon as Kane went down and they were able to bring up a couple of guys, Janmark and Cost, and they sat him at that point, and now he's out again, and you kind of wonder about his long-term durability at this point. I'm not sure if that's that's four injuries or, or one injury. One injury four times, yeah. Well put. Yeah. <sighs> it's even worse in some ways. Okay, Kurt, your bad thing. Uh, Evander Kane's injury um, in a number of ways. First of all, the injury itself was oh. ghastly. Uh, frightening, stomach-turning, 
thank God he's okay. Thank goodness for his family, he's okay. That that could have been bad. Had the player not thought quickly, had medical staff and training staff not thought quickly, that could have been much worse. Uh, a millimeter one way or the other, and we could have been talking about a very different injury again. Um, you know, word is, um, because, pardon the graphic nature of this, apparently because the cut was so clean, it enabled them to 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 do a, a proper repair of it, like there wasn't ripping and tearing. Uh, and so, you know, um, so all that is bad unto itself. Then you subtract the player, right. who I submit to you is the Oilers' best winger. Uh, on a team that's got some pretty good wingers. I think he's their best winger. Uh, so if you take your, your, your first line winger off the ice five on five, if you take uh, your, 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 your either first or second team, you know, uh, power play <coughs> winger out of the mix, he's gone. Um, he was taking a regular turn on the PK and he's good at penalty killing. So you take him out of that mix as well. So now both special teams are affected. Um, then you take away the deterrent factor of Evander Kane. Uh, you know, not too many people screw with Connor McDavid when Evander Kane is on the ice. Or at least they didn't because they knew that Kane would be up in their face. So they left deterrent value as well. Also, and maybe as important or more so than all of that, they lost his swagger. And I think this team for the first half of the season played like a team without swagger. Uh, and, you know, some people will, will call it confidence. Some people will call it ego. I don't care what you call it. It works when it's there. Uh, and I think his return to the lineup has corresponded with some of the order's best hockey of the season. Um, and I think his injury just served a bold face how important he truly is to this club on the ice and off the ice. Yeah, and on that note, Kurt, um, I've never actually, at least in my memory, seen this before. Evander Kane was essentially with the team the entire time that, that, that he was hurt, and not just in Edmonton. And he, was, he went on multiple like long road trips with the team. That, yeah. um, to my knowledge, is a rare, rare occurrence. They don't take players on road trips unless there's a chance that they're playing. They want them back, you know, in their city with the rehab specialist or, you know, whatever they want to do. But it wasn't just that last trip, you know, the Eastern trip that uh, and the dad's trip. But he, he was on at least three or four of the trips the entire time. He was doing interviews. He was around the team. So um, there is something about Kane, you know, I, I, we see his personality, like, you know, taking away his past, he seems like, you know, a great teammate and, you know, you add something to the team. And I think you're absolutely right. Just, just, you know, you know, now that he's back playing that, that swaggers even more and it gives the team confidence. It gives them camaraderie, gives them that swagger, gives them a little bit of cockiness. And I think that's good for this group. I'm going to have to vote for Zach Hyman. Kurt as the best winger on the Oilers this year. I mean, he has just been out of this world. So, I, I and last year, Evander Kane was their best winger, but I, I think uh, Hyman has stepped up. And Hyman's been great, but you'll never convince me he's a better pure goal scorer in Kane, and you won't convince me that he's better than Kane. Well, he hasn't been going against Kane to this point because mm -hmm. Kane's been out. 
so it's kind of hard to judge even. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I mean, your 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 overall you know body of work and look, not to take away anything from Zach Hyman, who's been terrific this year. What an acquisition! Yeah. yeah well, I mean, Zach Hyman and Evander Kane, if there was a Team Canada, could be on Team Canada. Yep. Um, good point. Kane got rolling again, like he did last year. Hyman would be definitely on Team Canada, without a doubt. Um, Nugent Hopkins would be on Team Canada, without a doubt. And um, maybe even Evander Kane once he gets going. Okay, my bad thing is uh, I'm going to go with two guys who have actually been playing a lot better in just recent weeks. But since no one mentioned Jack Campbell as their bad thing... um, He's got to be on the list, doesn't he? So he he was just <laughs> kind of historically bad. We we honestly hadn't seen goaltending that bad in Edmonton since the uh, 2009-10 season. Well, except, and we'd seen a lot of bad goaltending in that era, but Jeff Durandalorier. Yeah, had a stretch <laughs> that was a bit worse there for six weeks or so a couple seasons ago. Zach Smith, for yeah, his first year here, he was brutal for about six weeks. He was... Yeah, absolutely horrid. Sorry, to interrupt. <laughs> See, he 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 was the the number of bad goals he let in was out of this world. It was astronomical, and it was at the same rate that we saw with Jeff Durandalorier. Um, in that Jeff and Delorier maintained it for the whole season, and and Campbell since then is you know he's cut down on it. Um, he's cut it. He, tremendously like he's he's at a a kind of a normal rate if not a good rate for letting in for making mistakes on goals against nothing unusual at all he's starting to play well but man that i I agree with you kurt like that that his start almost sunk the oilers as much as skinner saved it you can't have goaltending like that it was it was atrocious and then you know the thought that you know i was pretty confident he was going to bounce back just from his statistical record he had been a good goalie five or six years in a row that didn't come from nothing. And um, so I thought, okay, chances are he's going to bounce back and it looks like he is. My other uh, player I'm going to mention here is Brett Kulak. And um, a month ago, we were all talking, owners need a second pairing left-handed D-man. Well, the reason that discussion was being had was because the guy who was expected or hoped to fill that role this year, Brett Kulak, was not coming close. He was really struggling on defense um, and he's not a physical defender. He can be, uh, and he was last year in the playoffs, a strong positional defender, very fast, getting in the way of guys, um, solid moving the puck. And at the start of the season, I thought he had a decent chance. I thought it was a decent bet that the Oilers had made on Brett Kulak for him to step up into the top four role, that he might be able to do it. Just like Cody Cece was a decent bet the year before and had actually done so and had stepped up and had been a, such a solid player for the Oilers last year. I thought, yeah, maybe Kulak's going to do that. But he really didn't. And um, that's why all that trade talk was going on. That's why it was identified as everybody as a major hole on the team. It is interesting. I mean, Duncan Keith also started off quite poorly um, with the Oilers and came on as the season went along. And 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 we are seeing this uptick now with Kulak's play during this winning streak. He's playing better hockey. And maybe he, maybe, um, you know, he's back with his old partner, Barry. They thrived last year in the playoffs. That's a pairing that works. It's, um, it's in the top, uh, it's in, I think it's in roughly in the top third 
of NHL D-men pairings for goals uh, plus minus is Kulak and Barry. So, <clears throat> you know, maybe uh, that's that at least can work, but that's not really a second pairing. Um, I don't think they can. I don't think they can handle. Like, it's certainly not a shutdown pairing. And you know what I'd like to see is uh, that kind of thing develop. And I don't think it's Nurse and Cece as your shutdown pairing. I just don't think that's the right idea. I think you want Darnell Nurse on kind of an attack pairing, um, leading the attack with with other strong attackers, and him being kind of the defensive guy out there, the most defensive guy out there, but on an offensive unit. And I think you need Cece combined with somebody else um, who can really shut down the opposition because I think CC's able to do so. He's not playing as well as he did last year. So it might be Philip Broberry um, this year who I think can can fulfill that role with Cody CC. But it's I, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be Kulak, but maybe he's going to surprise us like, uh, like Duncan Keith did last year and come on super strong in the second half of the season. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen because because that was Duncan Keith. Even at the end of, the, uh, of his career, he was still Duncan Keith with that kind of incredible intelligence with the puck, moving the puck, reading the game. And uh, so Kulak and Campbell are my uh, my bad things, but with an asterisk because they've both been coming on. A quick uh, a quick shot from me on, on Jack Campbell. And, you know, Ira alluded to the fact that he had a reset. Actually... Um, he had two resets. Twice they went for Stuart Skinner for extended periods of time while Jack practiced. I'm here to tell you guys that doesn't happen to any other goaltender in the NHL without going to the minors. The, the amount of patience that the club exhibited in giving him a chance to get his knickers back together <laughs> was pretty impressive. And I'm surely Jack Campbell thinks, man, I'm lucky I'm in this organization because I would have found myself in Kalamazoo if I was somewhere else. I, like his own organization in, in L.A. with Cal Peterson. And, and I think he's still down in uh, uh, on yep. Campbell, yep. Uh, playing for the Phoenix Ringo there and find yourself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. I think it's time for some numbers. Bruce, what's your number? Uh, I'm going to just pick a proxy number, uh, and this is 16, and that is the number of, wait for it, game-winning goals scored by the combination of Leon Dreisaitl, who has nine of the most in the NHL, and Connor McDavid, who has seven. Okay, the Oilers have won 28 games this year, and two guys have accounted for 16 of the game-winning goals. And I'm just old school enough, you know, that I still value old school stats like game winners, like plus minus, like three stars, like awards at the end of the season. Some of them are just opinions of experts or would be experts. Some of them are, you know, uh, numbers based on principles that may be a little flawed. And you might say, aha, McDavid scored the 4-1 goal and a 7-3 win over Chicago. What's so special about that goal? And I might say, well... Against Tampa Bay in the third period with the game tied 3-3, one guy on both teams was able to score to break that game in favor of his team, and that guy was Connor McDavid. And it was a hell of a goal, too. you know. And meanwhile, you have Leon Dreisaitl, who scored in the 59th minute to win a game that was tied in uh, Madison Square Garden. 
He scored in the 60th minute in Chicago to win that game in regulation. He scored in the 61st minute against Florida to win that game in overtime. He scored in the 56th minute back in Chicago to to give the Oilers a little extra lead when they were falling apart, and that wound up being the game winner by a one-goal win. And a lot of these were huge goals. And it's just my overall point is that these guys are still doing a lot of the heavy lifting when the the game is at its crucial point. The Oilers have got two game breakers, and both of them are breaking games. Indeed. Ira, what's your number? Um, I'm actually going to have two new numbers that are uh, uh, sequential, um, numbers 25 and 26. Um, 25 is the Oilers' uh, positive goal differential, and 26 is the number of regulation wins that the Oilers have. And the reason I bring up these specific numbers is there are two um, stats um, you know, within the overall point standing that I think sometimes provide a little extra context uh, on the level of play of a team. If you go and look at the, the standings, either by straight points or, or, or points percentage, um, the Oilers are essentially right there with the Kings and the Flames. Um, by straight points, if I just go to it. On the Golden Knights. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point, but it doesn't doesn't drive with my numbers as much, Bruce. Oh, um, <laughs> right there with them too. No, don't let the sudden. facts down in the way of a good story. It's <laughs> actually three points behind uh, three points behind the Kings, um, but a, just a few percentage points ahead by points percentage. Uh, and with Calgary, the Oilers are three points uh, ahead of the Flames, but. The Oilers have a plus 25 goal differential. They've scored 25 more goals than they've given up. The Flames are plus five, which is respectable, but that, that's a bubble team. Plus 25 is actually quite good. Um, and the Kings are in the negative. They're minus 10. The Oilers have a 35 goals better than them via goal differential, but the Kings have, have more points. Um, if I believe the Oilers have... The second best goal differential in the Pacific, one goal behind Seattle, and the third best in the conference. But yet they're right there in the standings and fighting tooth and nail with the Flames and the Kings. Um, and the other one is uh, regulation wins, um, which is actually more important a little bit because that's the first tiebreaker at the end of the season. And this one's even more staggering. The Oilers have 26 regulation wins, which is first at the Pacific, first of the Western Conference and tied for second in the entire NHL. Um, everything, Everybody's behind Boston and everything with, with Tampa and uh, um, Toronto. Um, these two metrics just kind of go to show, and I'm going to maybe might send Bruce on a little bit of a rant here, but, you know, the parody that the, the fake parody of the Bettman point uh, um, system with, uh, I believe the Flames have something like nine losses in overtime in the shootout. So if you want to call them uh, loser points, so others only have a couple. But uh, as far as winning games and winning games in regulation, um, the Oilers are doing that. And they're doing it with a bullet, especially recently with the plus uh, 25 goal differential. And I think it, for me, puts them in another tier over teams like the Flames and, and the Kings. And we're going to see that play out a bit in the in the second half. The Oilers have only played six three-point games this season. Mm -hmm. 
and all of the other teams in the Pacific have played at least 10. So in other words, all those teams, their games are valued more than the orders are by this cockamamie point system. And so the orders have to overcome that disadvantage of their games being worth less than the other teams uh, to still get more points than those teams. Well, that was a short rant, Bruce. All right. <laughs> Kurt. It's one one brick at a time, David. I've been making yeah, yeah, you'll take him down, Bruce. Years. Still you'll, you'll, take him, you'll take down that wall one day. Kurt, your number. Speaking of short, I was going to say four for the four gentlemen on this podcast. Hmm. Uh, but instead, I will say 33. 33. 33 years since the Edmonton Oilers won their last Stanley Cup. Ken, it's time. Go for it. 33 years is a long time to wait. Not as long as Maple Leaf fans have had to wait, but it's still 33 years. Ken, go for it. The time is nigh. Kurt, what is what do you think "go go for it" means? Like, what do you what are you envisioning? You know, I heard Frank I heard Frank Saravalli on uh, Bob Stoffer's oh, yeah. show about 10 oh, days pro- ago, and 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 he said he said you know it wasn't the Provorov thing, which I actually disagree with. What what I did agree with what with what he said was. Well, why not? I loved it when Frank said, why wouldn't they try to do this and do that? Like, think outside the box. Think big. Why can't you get a top four D-man and Jonathan Taves? Like, other teams do it. Ken's the longest-serving, most respected, la, 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 general manager in the NHL. Earn your paycheck, Ken. Put this team in the Stanley Cup final. All right, I like that. That was that was bracing. That was good, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we should have ended there instead of my number, which is not as, ex- well, it's kind of exciting. Uh, Nugent Hopkins and Zach Hyman are having career years. And I don't know, um, I haven't looked at this yet, but how rare is it for players of their age? Nugent's 30 this year, Hyman's 30 this year, I think. How rare is it for a player at age 30 to have his career year? I mean, I think it's happened. Maybe like Johnny Busick and... Um, just guessing on him off the top of my head. But five. <laughs> for 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 you know, not just a career, but in the, you know near the top end of the scoring. So Hyman is eleventh in scoring. He's got sixty points in forty nine games. He's gonna if he keeps at this pace, he will get a chance to get a hundred points. Same with Nugent Hopkins, who also has sixty points. Uh, he's tied for eleventh with Hyman and Sidney Crosby. So, um, 60 tied with Sidney Crosby, not bad. Say that again. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tied with Sidney Crosby and scoring just behind Miko Rantanen and, uh, you know, ahead of the immortals, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, and where's Austin Matthews? I don't even know where he is. He's, he's anyway, not playing, um, so he's tumbling down the scoring yeah. role a little bit. Yeah, he's only played 40, 47 games, Austin Matthews, 53 points in 43 weeks. It's up for the all-star break. Um, that's how I would put it. Uh, anyway, Hyman and Nugent Hopkins have been... Nugent has been playing fantastic defensive hockey as well as his offensive contribution. He's gotten a lot tougher and meaner. Something that I never thought I would say about Nugent, that he's he's kind of a tough and mean uh, SOB at times out there, but he is this year. He he really is, and it's fantastic. Yeah, I just think he's fed up of... He's, he's at that age where he's just thinking, why am I letting young guys walk all over me? Like, what's that all over? He just got tired of it, and he's he's putting his foot down, and he's putting it down hard. Hyman, he just seems to get better. 
Um, you know, we saw him come in last year. He was really good. And now he's just better. He's, he seems faster, more confident with the puck, more able to play, make plays at speed. Um, so uh, they're both, you know, probably on, a, you know, on heaters. And I'm glad they're not in their contract seasons. I can say that with uh, certainty. This would be a nightmare at this point to sign either of those guys. But they're, they're on these long-term deals. And it speaks well of the future on these long-term deals. I don't think they're going to uh, continue to score at this rate. But, um, you know, even if they drop off 10, 20 percent, uh, that's not such a terrible drop off uh, from 100 points if they get close to that. So they're, they're probably they're probably gonna, more likely going to get something in the low 90s. I'm guessing that they might drop off a little bit. Two fantastic hockey players. And um, with Evander Kane, it gives the Oilers five forwards at the top of the lineup. And, you know, Kurt, you're talking about going for it. Ken Holland sure did last year when he picked up uh, Evander Kane yep. and and Hyman. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I'd like to, you know, Kurt, what, what you're saying, I'm all, I'd like to see what they might have in mind. Um, there's some exciting players who are on the market. And that would be amazing if the Oilers could get one. And, yeah. Maybe they're going to give up the first pick and a really good prospect, but I agree. This, if you can make it happen, make if you, I just don't want to see them pick up a player like who's the guy from Columbus, Gavrikov, like the first pick for Gavrikov. That makes when I hear that, I feel like throwing up. Honestly, like are you <laughs> serious? That's not the trade that you make. Uh, not for a first. Not for a first. See the highlight from last night where he got walked in overtime. <laughs> He's probably a good player. I haven't watched him enough to say whether you know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just dead wrong about the player. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> come on, get if you're gonna make a move, make sure you get better. Make sure you get a really really good hockey player who can make a difference in the playoffs. Go for it with your trade. I, I think we could probably do a full separate uh, hour long podcast uh, parlaying on. Uh, Kurt's number there and go for it. And I don't disagree with Kurt. In fact, I, I agree with him, but I'm also somewhat a, a, of a realist. I'm a, I'm a guy that kind of looks at the, the cap situation quite a bit and knows the nuances and the restrictions of LTIR and what you can and cannot do. And um, I agree, but I also know that it's very, very, very hard. And bullets spent this year, such as first-round picks and and you know former first-round picks, can't be brought back um, in, in future seasons, which are also going to be go-for-it um, seasons when hopefully the team will not be in LTIR and accruing cap space and prorating acquired contracts, which they cannot do this year. Uh, so I yeah. disagree, but I also I you know don't. I, I don't. I don't make five million dollars like Ken Holland does, but it's tough to see how they can necessarily do it. And it's not that I don't want, not willing to give up the first round picks and the Borgos. I am, um, but it, but it's it's not just that. It's making the money work. In and you know, a lot of people are talking about one three million dollar player having to go out. Don't discount the possibility of two yep. three million dollar players going out. For sure, you got to pay. The- of them probably but yes yep. as i said we could we could do a whole podcast on, on this and maybe we oh, should d-man making that kind of money going out and a forward mm-hmm. right i mean there's they could move uh, one of their mid-level d-man if they're looking to improve their top four so yeah. uh anyway david yeah, i could. gotta i gotta say david great pull on johnny busick i looked him up here <laughs> and he at age 34 his career high was thir- was 69 points 
And at age 35, he had 116 points with the famous 1970-71 Boston Bruins, where he scored 51 goals, 48 points on the power play. Uh, former member of the uh, Edmonton Flyers, you know, he's from these parts. And uh, after that, remember his career high was 69. In his next four seasons, he got 83, 93, 75, 81, 83 points. His next five seasons. So maybe we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with uh, Nuge and Hyman, and they're you know they're establishing their new level that they're going to keep scoring at for a few years after this. You know that's that's really the hope, especially when you got both guys locked up for the next five plus years. So. We could call it the Johnny Bauer Award for uh, for career high after thirty. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, Mike Smith had that big year, but he had had other big years too. All right, guys, let's. Uh, Let's leave it there. Uh, it was a, it was great to talk to all of you. Thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right, thanks everybody. It was yeah. fun. My battery wishes it could have gone longer. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, and in between time, this has been another edition of the Cult Hockey Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>